Welcome to Let It Lopate at Large. I'm Let It Lopate. Taste, flavor, deliciousness are key factors in what we choose to eat. It turns out that the choices that we make to find the most appealing flavors may have played a role in human evolution. In their new book, Bob Dunn, a professor of applied ecology at North Carolina State University and in the Center for Evolutionary Hologenomics at the University of Copenhagen, and medical anthropologist Monica Sanchez weave together mouth-watering stories to make their case. Their book, Delicious, The Evolution of Flavor and How It Made Us Human, is published by Princeton University Press and brings Professor Rob Dunn to our show now. Welcome. Thanks for having me on the show, Leonard. It's a great pleasure. You begin your book with a description of a visit that you made to Croatia, uh, stopping at a number of places. You visited a cave where Neanderthals and humans had cohabited? We did, and uh, it was one of these many moments. We drag our kids all over the place into many, many caves, but we were sitting at the entrance of the cave and having a little bit of local homemade wine and some cheese, and, and there's this moment when you're looking out from the cave and you have this distinct impression that you're looking out in the way that Neanderthals might have looked out. But, but in that moment, we also started to think about, well, are, to what extent are we appreciating the flavors in our foods in the, in the way that they appreciated the flavors in their foods? And it was moments like that that really got us started thinking about this book to, to sort of cast back across time and, and think about flavor as a unifying idea. A recent guest on our show, archaeologist Rebecca Rag Sykes, discussed her new book about Neanderthals and their similarities and differences with Homo sapiens. And we talked a lot about uh, their hunting, uh, which to some degree was similar, but not exactly the same as what Homo sapiens were doing. Yeah, that's that's right. So they hunted differently, but I think one unifying thing, and I'll actually be talking to Rebecca in a couple of weeks about these sorts of issues. Um, but one unifying thing is that their diets varied from place to place, j mm. just as ours do. Uh, and so they had culinary traditions that seemed to be local. And so some Neanderthals like rabbits, some Neanderthals like deer, uh, some like bigger things. And, and so I think that the choices they were making and how they related to their environments um, is, is something that speaks to our broader kind, I think. Well, what did you learn about your subject during your exploration of that cave? Well, I, I think in that particular cave, um, not so much, but it was a cave that prompted us to think about this broader, broader question. And as we started to think about it, we realized that this, this question of how flavor evolved and how it influenced our history is not something that any group of people studies. It's kind of at the edge of what people who study Neanderthals study. It's at the edge of what cultural anthropologists study. It's at the edge of what nutritionists study and food scientists. And, and so we found ourselves in this wonderful, from a writerly perspective, wonderful uh, cave of our own where we had bits and pieces that we had to assemble to see the, the whole picture. And as we did, what we would come to see is that in many of these critical junctures in human evolution that, that people had argued that flavor had played some role, but they hadn't argued it in a way that connected it to other ideas. And so we started to connect those dots. Because so we tend we, to talk about prehistoric diets in terms of survival, not in terms of deliciousness and what 
might have led them to choose one food over another. Yeah, that's right. We imagine them uh, finding that their optimal diet and getting getting what they need. Um, but we don't imagine them having pleasure. And yet everything we know about them suggests that they were just as capable of making choices around pleasure as we are. And arguably, in some ways, it may have even featured more in their lives. In fact, you say it's a factor in the origins of human civilization. Deliciousness. Yeah. It, it is it, it, at various points. And so I think one of the earliest um, sort of transition moments, if you look at our ancestors, is when they started to use sticks as tools. And we can study this if we look at um, our living relatives that also use sticks as tools. And so, for example, chimpanzees. And if, and if you look at stick use in, in chimpanzees, what you see is that almost everything that they use sticks to get is more flavorful than what would otherwise be available to them. And often when they find those foods, they do those in ways they do so in ways that are not optimal. And, and so for example, there's a chimpanzee population that's figured out how to use big stick, thick sticks to pound six feet into the ground to get at these ground nesting bees and their honey. And they'll do it for months or even years to get to this honey. But when they get there, it's just a teeny amount of honey. And so there's no way that it's energetically reasonable but it's, it's delicious. Uh, and so we see chimpanzees making the same kinds of mistakes that you would expect of our ancestors to have made if, if deliciousness was featured in their stories. And so we imagine what, that, oh, go ahead, Leonard, I'm sorry. I was gonna say, what about our living ancestors, the hunter-gatherers of today? Yes, yeah, so, so the, the same sort of story. So um, hunter-gatherers living today, uh, when anthropologists study them, they very often make the same assumptions that they're foraging optimally for exactly what they need. Um, but of course, none of us do that in our daily lives. At least I, I don't do it. I didn't do it today. It's some terrible things. Um, but, but if you really look at their diets and, and ask hunter-gatherers about their choices, the, the few studies that have done this have found that, that very often they're making choices uh, in which they choose really tasty things. And so there are populations of hunter-gatherers uh, for whom more than 60% of their diet and part of the year is from honey. And you could argue, well, maybe that's what's optimal to go get, but that's not what they say. They say it's really, really tasty. Hmm. And, and, so, and so I think we have the same biases in, in thinking about hunter-gatherers uh, today as we do thinking about chimpanzees or our ancestors. And so we try to bring some of that pleasure back into those stories. You quote Eric Schlosser from his book, Fast Food Nation, where he said, the human craving for flavor has been a largely unacknowledged and unexamined force in history. Uh, why do you think that is? Because we start off with certain assumptions? Yeah, so I think we, we start off with assumptions about other species and other human populations that imagines them as sort of robot-like robot automata. I think it's also that flavor seems kind of whimsical and not very serious and kind of it's what foodies think about when they're spending too much money on a small plate of food. And so the idea that it's something you would take seriously as part of our story, I, I think is, um, you know, not how we often think about these questions. But I also think that flavor unites many of our senses. And so it's also no, it doesn't belong in one specific field. And so flavor is about the taste receptors on your tongue, but it's also about the feel in your mouth. And so the sense of touch, it's about 
the sense of smell, olfaction. And the people that study those different things are in different buildings and different institutions. <laughs> and so everybody's just got part of the picture. Whereas if you think about vision, well, well one group of people study vision. And, and so they, they can focus on that. But flavor is, is much more complex. But uh, don't different people from different cultures find uh, different things delicious? Yeah, so, so the, they're absolutely. And I it's think not universal. No, it's, it's not. So some parts are universal. So that uh, what happens with your taste receptors on your tongue, so that sweetness is, is, is enjoyed, that bitterness is not enjoyed, at least in young people, those are kind of universals. But, but then our heads are shaped in a way that really features the sense of smell inside our mouth. And so the molecules in your food actually go up the back of your mouth and into the back of your nose. And so you're smelling while you're eating. And all of those smells, they're actually learned. And, and they start to be learned in utero. And so when a mother is pregnant with a baby, the foods that she eats during pregnancy are actually learned by the baby to be good smells. And so oh. the baby, if the, if the mother ate anise or fermented fish or blue cheese or garlic, you name it, when the baby is born, if you hold that smell up on a little Q-tip, even just three hours after birth, the baby will lick its lips and, and make a, a mouth as if to, to nurse. And so that learning happens really early. And, and so, and then it's sort of um, complemented by the learning that happens in communities and families. And so that leads us to like different things in different places mm. in ways that seem very essential to us. And so like, how? How could you possibly like that food? Because this is what this is what my people like, and what you like is vulgar. And so it's it's also central to a lot of uh, xenophobia, and it, it plays many roles in many, in different moments in history and prehistory. But uh, if you grew up eating the kinds of foods that I did, you might feel it's important to unlearn those things. Yeah, yeah, me as me as well. And so I, I was in a meeting recently with. People who study fermented foods from around the world, and and uh, everybody was asked to share an experience of your childhood and a fermented food, and and for the most part, the Americans all talked about you know processed cheese where you pull the plastic off the outside. Uh, mm -hmm. and so there's uh, that then that which was my experience of childhood fermented things, uh, and and so I think in an industrialized society with industrialized food systems in many ways that industrial process uh, takes the place of that early learning. And so there have been studies that have shown uh, for babies that are uh, fed formula, that if you put an unusual aroma in the formula, those babies as adults still like that aroma. Mm. And so if you think about industrial food production, you know, many of the aromas we find in cereals and, and other really processed foods those are things we're, we're learning really early. Those are good smells. And, and, and so we're taught to, to love that food supply, which is very much at odds with what we would have, would have eaten for a long, long time. You mentioned the taste receptors. Are, are those the uh, papillae, the, the, uh, the bumps that we see uh, when we stick out our tongue? Yeah, they're, they're inside those bumps. And um, we're, we're finding more. We're, sensory scientists are finding more and more kinds of taste receptors. And so I think what we, you know, many of us learned as children is that there were sour taste receptors, bitter, sweet, um, salty, 
then was added to that list umami, which is the taste receptor mm. that responds to savory things. And so in, in tomatoes or an MSG, MSG is actually the compound that triggers that receptor best. Um, but since then, people have also discovered other receptors and also the reality that different mammals have different taste receptors. And so in the same way that you imagine each species sees a different world, each species tongue is detecting and responding to a different world. Um, and the tongue is really our, our simplest navigation tool with regard to figuring out what we should and shouldn't eat. And it leads us to things that historically we needed. Historically, we needed sugar for energy. We needed savory things for nitrogen. And then bitter leads us away from things that might be dangerous. And so that's the that's the taste system. My guest is Rob Dunn, D-U-N-N, who is co-author with Monica Sanchez of Delicious, The Evolution of Flavor and How It Made Us Human. It is published by Princeton University Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. As I mentioned in the introduction, you're an ecologist. How does telling the story of taste fit into the study of ecology and, and evolution? So, so I, I think about uh, how organisms relate to other organisms and evolve. And as we started working on this book, it became clear that many of the ways in which species interact with each other are framed around flavor experiences. And so, most mammal species, what they choose to eat or not eat is ultimately influenced by a decision they make about, does it taste good? Is this what my species eats? And, and so in, in that way, it relates to a lot of what, what I do. But I'm also really interested in that specific human story. And so I'm a human ecologist and study human biodiversity. And, and, and it became clear that in that specific human story, that flavor was very often how we related to other species. And even if you look at times when uh, we let other species to go extinct, it seems as though many of many of those cases, the species we led to go extinct, uh, that we extinguished, were the most delicious ones. Mm -hmm. And so I think- So we overhunted them. Yeah, we, we overhunted them. They were so, so tasty. And then one day we went up to look, look for them again and, and the menu was <laughs> depleted. You, uh work in evolutionary hologenomics at, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, at the University of Copenhagen. What's evolutionary hologenomics? So hologenomic, a hologenome is all of your genes, but also all the genes of the other species that live on your body. And so evolutionary hologenomics studies evolution by considering both those things together. You mean the viruses that are in our DNA? Yeah, the viruses, well, there's uh, viruses uh, in us and on us. Some of them are in our DNA. Some of them are just riding us. Um, there are mites that are on your head. There are bacteria in your guts. And so all of those genes together. Um, we're all, each of us is a kind of zoo, some more, more than others. You've drawn upon studies of human ecology, chemistry, anthropology, neurobiology, psychology, all factors in, in what we choose to eat? Uh, because I, I'm thinking about somebody, a uh, famous person you quoted, Jean Andelme Briat Savarin, the uh, 18th century, 19th century French lawyer and author of The uh, Physiology of Taste, who uh, 
which I understand is the first book on gastronomy, uh, he said, tell me what you eat and I'll tell you what you are. That was pretty insightful. It, it was very insightful. I mean, a lot of um, his book is, is full of very quirky uh, things, but also really deep insights um, that, that that transcend many different disciplines. And so it's it's wonderful to read his and other works of that time and to think to think about everything we already know about flavor and have known for a while, but that have been kind of dismissed by um, people focused on uh, the more serious parts of these stories. Uh, but he, yeah, he was on to the right path. We've also shown that, uh, uh, that if you eat lots of fermented foods, that the microbes in the fermented foods colonize your body and become part of you. And so there's this extra way in which you are what you mm. eat. And so if you eat lots of sourdough bread and drink lots of wine and beer, and it's still alive, those microbes become part of you. So these connections are uh, metaphorical, but often in some, some cases, literal. Is that bad or good? Uh, it, it depends on which species. So we did a big study with bakers where we had bakers from around the world uh, all make the same sourdough starter. So they mix flour and water together and they brought it to a common place in Belgium, uh, the Parato Center for Bread Flavor. And, and then we studied what, what had colonized those starters, which they could use to leaven their, their bread. And what we found was that their own microbes had colonized the starters. But the other thing we saw was that when we studied the hands of the bakers, even after they scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed them, that they were covered with sourdough bacteria and sourdough yeast. And so their, their skin microbes had fundamentally changed through their daily acts. And I, I think that observation really led me to wonder, well, what, what, does, what do my body microbes say about me? You know, if we are what we eat, um, what, what is my lifetime of consumption uh, recorded in, in my uh, microbes? Uh, mm. And probably some, some bad things from the early years, but. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I've not checked. You mentioned the use of tools. Um, didn't prehistoric humans hunt more and more efficiently for the things that they preferred to eat, which would have uh, created a need for more sophisticated hunting weapons? Uh, is that did that result in new technological developments? Yeah, so there's a, there's a time period about 1.9 million years ago when um, our ancestors' brains uh, get much bigger. And, and if you look at the skulls of our ancestors at that point, like modern humans, they start to have this weird bulbous shape that uh, we're so used to it, we don't think of it as unusual, but it's almost grotesque. And, and so one of the areas that the paleoanthropologists, the people who study this, have, have spent a lot of debate uh, over the years is what exactly was it that happened at that time? And there's still lots of debate. And so some people argue that maybe the, those uh, early people figured out how to use stone tools to get into mussels and to eat them, you know, the way you might eat mm. oysters. Some people argue that maybe they figured out how to smoke bees. And so then you could get more honey out of a beehive and more calories. Some people argue that it was cooking that happens at this time. Uh, yes, R Richard Wrangham studied the use of fire for cooking for ancient humans. Yeah, and so, and so, rank, and so he, he argues that it happened that early. And all these people disagree, but the one thing they all agree on 
is that it was a food transition. And so something about food change and how we prepared our foods allowed us to, to get the calories needed to have bigger brains. And all those people also agree that those new foods, in addition to being uh, providing more calories most of the time, were also more flavorful. And so you were thinking about honey, you're thinking about you know, mussels that are a little bit like oysters, you're thinking about cooked meat. And, and so it's, it's kind of a culinary transition and we don't quite know exactly what its details were, but, but everybody agrees that in some way or another it was culinary, which I, I think is pretty remarkable. Do we know whether our taste receptors uh, were different in prehistoric times and uh, whether they've changed? So most of them are pretty similar. Um, so sweet seems very similar. Umami seems quite similar. Um, sour, we, we don't know about. Uh, one that's a little bit different is bitter or bitter taste receptors. So for most of our taste receptors, you have one receptor type. So there's one sweet taste receptor type and it intercepts sugars and then sends a signal to the brain sugar. With bitter taste receptors, uh, each of us has many different kinds of bitter taste receptors and they kind of catch different chemicals as they come into our mouths. And so I, 28 is the sort of standard human number of these receptors. And each one catches different chemicals, but they're all wired to the same uh, signal. And so there's just one sensory perception of bitter. We can only taste one kind of bitter, but it comes from different compounds. And so if we look at our ancestors, if we infer the, the bitter taste receptors in our ancestors and our own, they've changed quite a bit. And the thought is that the plants that were dangerous in the context in which we evolved and the chemicals that were dangerous were different than those uh, that we encountered as we moved around the world. And so it became necessary to avoid different things and the bitter taste receptors responded as a function of that. And, and we can see that today uh, in that uh, even, even among modern humans living today, taste receptor, bitter taste receptors differ. And so there's one taste receptor that responds to the chemicals in Brussels sprouts. And depending on which version of that you have, uh, that bitter signal from Brussels sprouts is really strong, weak, or even not present at all. And so we're, we're still evolving with respect to, to taste. And Brussels sprouts are different if they come from different places, uh, are grown in different kinds of soil. Uh, so uh, I may like Brussels sprouts and then not like something I picked up at the supermarket. Yeah, that, yeah, that's that's right. And so there's the there's the Brussels sprout is changing and we're changing, uh, and we're encountering it in different circumstances. And you may love it in in one kind of preparation um, that reminds you of the way you ate it as a child, which is the the other part of this that's really fascinating is this the smell part so most of taste is not learned it's it's really we're just born with it but smell is is learned uh and so it allows us to to form different impressions of the same food and, and part of how that happens is through memories and so each time you taste a, a particular you experience a particular aroma it, it gets lodged in your brain both as a memory and, and with regard to, was it a good memory or a bad memory? And the more good memories you have of a particular kind of aroma, the more your brain just classifies that aroma as, as pleasing. 
And so we can learn to like almost anything with regard to its aroma, which I think is a really amazing feature of our brain. It's sort of our most ancient library. Now, uh, you, uh, things like that we need, like salt and sugar, signal the, the pleasure reward system with the release of dopamine in our brains. How important is dopamine to the story that you're telling? So, so I think for, for taste, it's, it's quite important. And, and um, it's sending this signal that gives us pleasure, that reminds us to keep um, finding this particular thing. Uh, and so I would say the reward system in general is very important to these choices we're making. And so when I, when I see the videos of the chimpanzees pounding on the beehive for months and months, um, you know, whether they don't know it, but they're looking for that dopamine rush of finding that, that pleasing sweetness that they remember from another time. And, and so it's, it's quite important, but it's also quite complex. Uh, and so I would say we, we only, it's, it's fuzzy what we understand about its, its role in this story. Because uh, we uh, like salt and sugar, and then we think something is too salty or too sweet. So um, when do we cross <laughs> that line? Is there something, are there uh, taste receptors that, uh, that detect things uh, in that way? So, so for salt, there are. So for salt, you actually have a, a, a low concentration receptor and a high concentration receptor. And the high concentration one tells you something is too salty and it triggers a sort of a negative uh, response to it. And the thought there is that uh, because our ancestors could drink, in, accidentally drink water that was salty uh, to excess, and it would be a negative consequence for them, that those two receptors sort of keep our ancestors, kept our ancestors looking for salt, but, but also sort of scolded them if they were eating too, too high a concentration of it. But sweet doesn't have that second receptor. And so our- That's why we get fat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, what is mouthfeel and how does it contribute to taste and how important is it? So, so mouthfeel is the sense of physical touch in the mouth. And it's interesting. We take that outside the mouth. We take that sense of touch very seriously. I mean, it governs many of our daily inter interactions and our quest for love and much else. In the mouth, it's, um, it's taken very seriously by chefs uh, and by some food scientists, but I would say more generally is, is not even talked about. Um, and, and yet, as far as we know today, if you think about the pleasure of fat, you know, fat in your mouth, some of that comes from the aromas trapped in the fat, but a lot of it is just the mouthfeel. It is the smooth texture of the fat. And so an avocado's smoothness in your mouth mm. and, and people love it. And we also know that other species love it. So Big cats like jaguars and even smaller cats like margais love avocados. And the only interpretation to date of why they love avocados is that the mouthfeel to them is pleasing. And so it's potentially actually a pretty important thing in nature, but, it, but it's been, um, it's really just, it sounds silly if nothing else, but it's not been taken super seriously. Uh, chefs love it. Chefs will talk about mouthfeel for a long, long time. Is there a risk to deliciousness? Um, should we reward ourselves with delicious food continuously? For example, 
although um, many carnivores may find uh, filet mignon with roasted garlic, mashed potatoes, and a glass of Cabernet Sauvignon delicious, delicious um, they shouldn't have three servings. Is there a danger in the reward system for uh, unhealthy weight gain, heart health, and our bodies in general? There is for sure. And I would say the greatest danger, to, it comes from what our tongue tells us to do. Our tongue is the, you know, it, it's, it's a very ancient uh, map to what we need. And we see this even with non-human primates. And so there's a population of chimpanzees in Uganda right now that's, um, it lives in an area where there's forests, but also agriculture. And that population has basically moved into a patch of sugarcane and just sits and eats sugarcane all day. Mm. And th they are rewarded for it. Their taste system says it's really good. It's very likely to be bad for them in terms of their health. And, and so the, the same thing is tr true for us. If we just, if we were still living in our ancestral context and we followed our tongues to, to what was around us, we would probably be fine. But we now live in an environment where everything is sugarcane. You know, we can make infinite quantities of what our tongue craves. And the other what is side. The, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Leonard. No, no, no. Well, I was just going to follow up with uh, the, the science of biological. And forgive me if I mispronounce this because it's a really weird looking word. Uh, stoichiometry, uh, which you admit is an obscure science. How does um, that help us to eat the right foods? Yeah, so the, it is a, it's a weird sounding word. It's a weird looking word. People Did I pronounce it right? It. Yeah, sto stoichiometry, yep. Um, so it's, it's the idea that, that in some way you need to find the nutrients in the world that your body needs to make cells and then also that it needs for energy. And so you can, you can write an equation for each individual organism. So there's an equation for Leonard Lopate that, that, and this, its specific details. But, but no organisms know their own equations. And so the question is, how do they find what they need? And the argument from biological stoichiometry is that the, the tongue and its taste receptors really evolved as a very simple way to point animals toward what they need. And what they need is very often, um, sort of strangely, those things that are common in the ocean. And so our very distant ancestors, when their body parts were first evolving, when their cells were first evolving, they were in the sea. And so in that evolutionary uh, milieu, they took advantage of what was common. But then once they came ashore, much of what was common in the sea was no longer as common. And so salt is a good example. No, no shor shortage of salt in the sea, but on land it can be uh, very scarce. And so stoichiometry really is a way of predicting which of those things are going to be scarce and how does it differ from one species to another. And so we know that if you're a carnivore, uh, if you just keep eating your prey items, you get more or less what you need. Sometimes you need a little more sugar, but they, their body is like your body. And so it's, it's pretty good. But if you're an herbivore or an, worse, an omnivore, it's really tricky. So how does a, a raccoon know if it's getting enough salt and taste evolved as a way of pointing the raccoon of pointing us toward those things that on average as terrestrial mammals uh, we tend to need but to go back to your question about the is it good for us you know as, mm -hmm. as soon as the landscape changes 
what we need changes dramatically. And if that happens over a long time, the taste receptors evolve. But if it happens in the short period of industrialization, the taste receptors don't have time. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Have a banana, Hannah. Try the salami, Tommy. Give it the gravy, Davy. Everybody eats when they come to my house. <laughs> Try a tomato plate, too. Here's Cacciatore Dore. Taste of Baloney Tony. Everybody eats when they come to my house. A bit of a nice cap to go along with our discussion of food. Before I get back to my conversation with Professor Rob Dunn, I need to take a moment to ask you to consider contributing to the station to help us get back on our feet um, because this terrible pandemic has made our financial situation incredibly difficult. And that's why we're asking everyone who tunes into Leonard Lopate at Large on a regular basis and is financially able to step up right now by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516 516- 620-3602 to help keep these one-hour deep dives coming to you live on WBAI weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And one great way to do that without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time is to become a BAI buddy, sustaining members. They're listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on this show. And I'm very pleased to announce that anyone who signs up today to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large by calling 516-620-3602 or by going online to give to WBAI.org will receive a free copy of Delicious, The Evolution of Flavor and How It Made Us Human by my guest, Professor Rob Dunn. It's our way of saying thanks for joining your fellow listeners who have already stepped up to support the show. Our listeners are our only source of revenue because WBAI doesn't take grant money or corporate sponsorships of any kind. We don't run ads that are called funding credits by other public radio stations. And I have to say, as bosses go, you're all pretty good. But WBAI still does need a lot of financial help some more potential bosses had to stretch the metaphor to this to the breaking point to keep this historic station going. So whatever level you're able to contribute at, we need you to step up now and make a tax deductible contribution of any amount so we can continue to, to bring you these long form interviews on topics that we hope you will find interesting. One last time, make that call to 516-620-3602 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And please be sure to make the contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us at this show, thanks. And we return now to Rob Dunn, co-author with Monica Sanchez of Delicious, The Evolution of Flavor and How It Made Us Human. It is published by uh, Princeton, Univer- uh, Princeton University Press. Um, where was I? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm <laughs> the five senses. I was thinking about them. Sight, sound, smell, touch, and taste. Do they all play roles in determining what we may find delicious? Uh, they all do. Um, that's, yeah, that's a good question. So for sure, we know that um, we know that in a restaurant context. And so there are lots of studies of 
the ways in which the sounds in a restaurant influence uh, how we experience the food. There are studies of the, the physical appearance of the food on the yeah. plate and how it people say ooh ooh when the way when the food comes to the table and and they say ooh in different ways in different places you know and so there have been studies that in, in some places people find the food beautiful it's, it's in two clumps in other places people prefer three clumps and so the, there's this the, the ooh is is complex mm. but but chimpanzees also do uh voice mm. and ooh in the context of sound and and uh, physical appearances of their foods and so uh, one of the ways that's true is that chimpanzees find their food often by listening to their friends and so if an individual chimpanzee finds a big uh batch of fruit that that it knows is more than it's going to eat on its own it will do a, a call along with wh whichever other chimps are there that signals to the other chimps that there's fruit here, it's good fruit, there's a lot of it. And so sound then primes the pump for that, that pleasure. And I mean, I don't know exactly what a, a chimpanzee experiences when it's brachiating, you know, climbing toward a batch of fruit that its friends said is good, but, it, but probably it's the anticipation of, of pleasure. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then there's the physical appearance that just like us, they're making, and a first choice by looking at the food. Does this look good? Hmm. Um, and there's plenty of zoo studies of gorillas and chimpanzees both that, you know, there's some foods that even if they would like the taste, they, they, they won't initially pick them up because they just don't, they don't look yeah. right. So it, it's, the whole, it's the whole sensory system uh, that comes into play. You mentioned umami earlier. It was coined uh, in 1907 by a chemistry professor in Tokyo who was struck by the delicious taste of the simple bowl of broth called dashi that he was eating. Um, what was different about the taste that led him to, to come up with a new name? Uh, and uh, does umami have special qualities that uh, uh, are important for us? It does. It's it's a pretty remarkable taste, and and so the the me on uh, umami is, just means taste in Japanese, and and so the it means like savory taste. Uh, and so he he was eating that bowl of of dashi and perceived that there was a taste he was perceiving that didn't match up with what was known. Um, mm. And it was a it's a taste that is sort of culturally known in Japan, and and so what he was doing was bringing it into the scientific world that. That this needs to be explained, and and so he would go on and figure out which compounds tr trigger it, or at least some of the compounds, um, and those would include the the compound that's in MSG, but it's also in seaweed, it's in tomatoes, it's in lots of fermented foods, and it, it would take many years before scientists outside of Japan believed him. Uh, I mean, many decades, but before then, he he patented MSG and started selling it. And the consumers came to appreciate it long before scientists did. And now we consider it a bad thing. Well, there was a period of time when it was thought to be a bad thing, but it's got, you know, it's, it's global sales today suggest that by, by and large, it's still thought of as a pretty good thing, but mm -hmm. it's the, it's really the essence of umami. So if you add MSG to a food, the change in taste that you experience is due to umami. And so can't it? Is that um, finish? 
is that umami was leading leads led us toward amino acids so toward proteins mm. it said this food has nitrogen eat it you need it uh and it's that, that's what i was going to ask you about that it helps our brain find the nitrogen that we need why is ingesting nitrogen important for us so we need nitrogen to make amino acids we need amino acids to make proteins we need proteins in our muscles and all our cells um, but if we're eating plants, the plants we eat don't have typically as much nitrogen as we need. And so it's a way of reminding us, oh, if this has umami, eat more of this. So we can balance that stoichiometric equation. Uh, so it's, it's a pretty fascinating taste. Isn't there work being done to explore other new tastes? Uh, what's Michael Tordoff, a, a scientist at the Minnell Chemical Census Center in Philadelphia working on? So Michael is an amazing sensory scientist, and he um, he's recently dis discovered or worked on uh, evidence for two additional taste receptors, one of which detects calcium. And so we need more calcium than our food usually has. And Michael appears to have found a calcium taste receptor. It's in humans. And then another taste receptor for phosphorus which is another thing that tends to be rare in our diets relative to what we need. But what's interesting with both of those is, is we know the receptor is there. We know it, uh, it's triggered. It sends a signal to our brain. But we don't actually know what, what the, the sensory perception of it, of it is. You know, what does calcium taste like, really? What does phosphorus taste like? And so it's in this tricky moment where we, we don't quite know, is this really important? Is it, is it there, but not so important? Did it used to be more important? And then the, the other taste that's, that's sort of new, newer to the scene is kukumi, which, which uh, is now talked about very often by chefs, but, but sensory scientists aren't so sure about it. And it's a taste um, that's associated with the prolonging of a flavor in your mouth and mm. the kind of fullness of a, of a flavor. And so foods that have kukumi, they have this sort of more lasting experience. And so some people think they've discovered uh, kukumi as the next big taste. And, and we'll wait and see a little bit. In the book, you note how fruits are valued in human society and that their value is even reflected in our language. I'm, I'm quoting you. If something pays off, it is fruitful. If it pays off without much investment, it is a windfall of fruit. If it doesn't pay off, it's fruitless. If something wonderful is easy to attain, its fruit is low hanging. Now, aren't fruits among the few things in nature that have evolved to attract a variety of species, humans, and many different kinds of animals? Uh, are they, they're trying to attract us to eat them? Yeah, that's right. So they, they um, invest in sugars to reward our sweet, our sweet taste receptors. Um, they sometimes invest in the compounds that produce umami tastes, and they're trying to attract us to eat them so that we then pass their seeds somewhere, somewhere else that would be better for them to grow. And, and so it's the one part of nature that really evolved in response to our flavor. You mentioned fermentation. What did a presentation on fermentation by primatologist Katie Amato explain about our sour taste receptors? So until relatively recently, it was thought, so fermentation is the, is the control of microbes to produce some new kind of food. And so 
beer is fermented, wine is fermented, kimchi, mm. sauerkraut, sourdough bread. And it used to be thought that our ancestors didn't invent ways to ferment foods until after agriculture, when they had extra grain sitting around or extra cabbage, and they wanted to store it for the winter. But increasingly, it looks like actually the control of fermentation considerably uh, predates agriculture. And Katie has actually begun to argue uh, that maybe it predates it by millions of years, that, that perhaps our, our ancestors were fermenting food as early as 1.9 million years ago. Hmm. And, and, and so re totally rethinking our story. Monkeys in Costa Rica too, Capuchin monkeys. Yeah, so, they... so Liz, Liz Mallet, who now works with, with Katie, made a discovery that some populations of capuchin monkeys will knock um, almendro fruits out of trees. And what Liz, when she was doing this work, knew already is that the fruits were too big and hard for the monkeys to eat, but they would spend a long time knocking them out of the trees. And so when she first saw this, she couldn't explain it and just sort of noted it in her notebook. But then she saw that what happened is the monkeys would come back about three weeks later when the fruits were on the ground and they'd started to ferment, they'd started to rot and become more like a sort of slightly alcoholic kombucha. And mm. then they would eat them. And so she actually saw the monkeys do this three, no fewer than three times. And so what she's argued is that this is actually a way, an example of non-human primates controlling fermentation. And so if they can do it, you know, I think we have to imagine that our ancestors at least probably were capable of doing so as well. Is alcohol similar in, to salt and sugar in that it's good in certain quantities, but uh, not in excess? It is, um, well, it depends on, on the context, but in general for our, for humans and our living close relatives, so chimpanzees and gorillas, uh, a little bit of alcohol provides calories. It provides some, you know, cognitive pleasure uh, or drunkenness. Uh, I like wine. Yeah, I, 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 I like beer too. too. Um, and, and so, so do they, but, but there, the, if we go back beyond, say, 10 million years ago, the, the earlier ancestors didn't get that same appreciation from alcohol because the, the enzyme alcohol dehydrogenase that breaks down the alcohol in those earlier ancestors was, was not very effective. But about 10 million years ago, a, a new version evolved that was 40 times as fast. And so that really allowed the, that sort of proto-gorilla chimpanzee human to start to eat more fermented things. Mm. And it really set the stage for, for a much later transition in our own species in which we now consume lots and lots of those things. And, and so it's part of the same kind of story, albeit a little bit different. You have fun with language in writing some of this. For example, you wrote about the origin of spices uh, uh, in which you point out that humans started using food flavorings and seasonings long before the merchants of Venice brought them to Europe from overseas. In fact, weren't spices found in a 60,000-year-old Neanderthal hearth in, uh, in Syria, in a cave in Syria? Yeah, so, so there's a, there's a if, it's, if it's the same example I'm, I'm thinking of, Leonard, there's an example of a berry associated um, with a Neanderthal site in Syria, and it was a berry that was typically used as a spice. It's not very sweet. Other places it lives, people don't use it as a, um, 
as, just as a fruit. And so one interpretation is that the Neanderthals were already spicing their meat. And so mm. imagine you've got the, the bit of deer, you've rolled it in some berries, and then you're roasting it. Um, it really seems quite delicious. And, and, and so it could be that that's one of the earliest examples. Um, but I would say we don't totally know yet. When did cheese making begin? So cheese making starts af after agriculture, after, after the domestication of milk making uh, of mammals that we, we rely on for milk. And it started as a way to be able to store that milk. And so uh, cheese is the fermented curd from the milk. The whey is often used for other things. And so it starts in this very um, simple way. But when cheese is made, when it's fermented, even a very simple cheese uh, has many new flavors that aren't in the original milk. And so the process of fermenting that cheese imbues it with more, more umami, more, more kukumi, totally new aromas. But it also creates a kind of um, culinary clay that people could experiment with and produce totally new flavors from. And so I think for, me, for both Monica and me, one, one of the really exciting moments in this history of cheese is what happens in medieval Europe when Benedictine monks start to, to make cheese at a, a big scale. And the Benedictines uh, couldn't eat a whole variety of foods because they were taboo, but they took cheese and they created many of those flavors that they were missing out of the cheese. And so, most of the stinkiest, most wonderful cheeses of France today were created or preserved by monks in that time period. And, and, and so all of our modern moments sit on these complicated flavor stories. What is the flavor seeker hypothesis? The flavor seeker hypothesis is the idea that when our ancestors were going out to find new things, that what they were seeking was flavors. Very often by finding new flavors, they found new calories, they found new dietary items. But in a, on a given day, what they were actually looking for was a flavor. They weren't thinking, how do I find new calories? How do I optimize? They were seeking flavors and that was foremost in those moments. So when they found flavors they liked, uh, they were actually benefiting from the fact that the flavors did represent things that they needed or um, yeah, that, that's did, were they also eating bad foods? They, they would have also eaten bad foods sometimes, but on average, it would have led them to what they needed. Um, one of the examples of the bad food scenario is that there's a, there's a fruit that, a, that uh, almost all primates in Africa, including humans, love. Pentandry uh, planda, I never say it quite right. Mm -hmm. uh, and it looks very sweet. And if you or I tasted it, it would taste very sweet, but it has virtually no sugar. Instead, it, it produces a teeny little protein that tricks taste receptors into thinking the fruit is sweet. And the protein, the fruit can produce very little of the protein, but the fruit still tastes very sweet. And so it's like a, a, a cost saving uh, device for the fruit. But uh, recent research has shown that gorillas don't eat this fruit, even though chimpanzees do, bonobos do, other primates do, humans do. And it was discovered that the reason that the, the gorillas don't eat it is that their taste receptor has evolved 
so as to not be tricked by the little protein that the fruit produces. <laughs> and I always knew those gorillas were smarter than we were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so, I mean, this is what we need when we confront the uh, cereal aisle. We need our taste receptors to evolve so we're no longer tricked. Um, we, we pretty much, we've run out of time, unfortunately, but I do want to tell you that I love the last sentence of your book, quote, we sit together and make sense of the world one bite at a time. Thank you so much, Leonard. What a joy. Oh, it's been a great pleasure for me. Uh, Rob Dunn, who with Monica Sanchez, written Delicious, The Evolution of Flavor and How It Made Us Human. It's published by Princeton University Press. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Kate Guan Allison for preparing the interview you just heard. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows on our website, lenderedlocatedlarge.com. Uh, also, if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I'd like to take just one more minute to ask for your support for this station and this show, Leonard Lopate at Large. Please step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by calling 516-620-3602 or by going online to give to wbai.org right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And if you sign up today to become a BAI member, uh, BAI buddy in the name of this show, you will receive a free copy of Delicious, The Evolution of Flavor and How It Made Us Human, co-written by my guest, Professor Rob Dunn. So one last time, the number to call is 516-620-3602. We can go online to give to WBAI.org. And we hope that you'll make that tax-deductible contribution right now so that we can send you this really fascinating book. And we hope that you will tune in tomorrow when Distinguished Professor of American Studies at Trinity College, Devarian L. Baldwin, will discuss his new book, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. We'll see you then.